Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute for this joint event with the Inter-American Dialogue on Lessons from Colombia's War on Drugs. My name is Juan Carlos Hidalgo. I'm a policy analyst on Latin America here at, at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity at the Cato Institute. Colombia is perhaps the country that has suffered the most in the last three decades from Washington's international war on drugs. A vast country with a tortuous geography and an already violent past, drug trafficking and in particular cocaine trade has exacerbated many of the country's internal problems, such as armed insurgencies, weak state presence over the national territory, corruptible institutions, and feeble protection of property rights. For many years, Colombia was synonymous with drugs and violence. In the 1980s, the Medellin and cartels launched a war against the government that cost the lives of thousands of Colombians, most of them innocent bystanders. Pablo Escobar, the leader of the Medellin cartel, became infamous for his abominable terrorist attacks against civilian targets. But when the cartels were defeated and Escobar was assassinated in the early 1990s, violence didn't go away. The drug trade was rapidly taken over by the Marxist far guerrillas and their sworn enemies, the right-wing paramilitary groups. By the early 2000s, the guerrillas controlled vast swaths of the country, and the question among many officials here in Washington was whether the Colombian government would survive. For some, those days seemed long gone. After billions of dollars from the United States in US military assistance under Plan Colombia, and an aggressive offensive against the guerrillas, Colombia has experienced a dramatic reduction in crime in the last decade. In Colombia, the only risk is wanting to stay, says an official tourism campaign. Not surprisingly, some people claim that Colombia is a rare success story in an otherwise failed hemispheric war on drugs. Perhaps other countries such as Mexico, where drug violence has increased to historic levels, could replicate the Colombian experience. It's not a coincidence that the new Mexican president, Enrique Peña Nieto, has recruited General Oscar Naranjo, the former head of Colombia's National Police, as one of his top security advisors. Today's panel will take a look at Colombia's 30-year experience in the war on drugs. The speakers will discuss the extent to which drug prohibition has fueled violence in Colombia, the effectiveness of interdiction and eradication efforts in tackling the illicit drug trade, and whether Colombia's experience can be replicated in other countries such as Mexico. But first, we, before we start with our panel, we have some opening remarks from Colombia's ambassador, Mr. Carlos Urrutia, who was appointed ambassador of Colombia to the United States in September this year. Ambassador Urrutia will deliver his remarks, and then he will join the audience uh, as soon as, as he's done. Ambassador, or before, before, sorry, before introducing you, let me talk a little bit about Ambassador Carlos Urrutia. As I said, he was appointed uh, Ambassador of Colombia to the United States in September 5, 2012 by President Juan Manuel Santos. Throughout his career, Urrutia has been a leader in both the public and private sectors, including serving as manager partner and of Brigard and Urrutia, one of the most prestigious law firms in Colombia. During his uh, 35-year career at the firm, Urrutia advised clients on a wide variety of issues, such as commercial law, commercial transactions, energy projects, international financial transactions, litigation, and arbitration. Urrutia's work in the public sector dates back to 1975, when he became Secretary General 
of the Governor Chief of Cundinamarca, one of the Colombia's departments. He also served as Secretary of Finance of that department. Appointed by the Colombian government, Urruti is also currently a member of the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes Panel of Arbitrators. Urrutia began his undergraduate studies at Job Hopkins University and completed his studies of law at the Universidad de los Andes in Colombia, earning a degree in law. So help me welcome first uh, Ambassador Urrutia. Thank you very much, Juan Carlos. And, and, and first of all, I would like to thank the Cato Institute and the Inter-American Dialogue for this invitation and also express how honored and pleased I am to provide these opening remarks in the context of the presentation that Professor Daniel Mejia, Director of the Research Center on Drugs and Security at Universidad de los Andes, which as you well know is Colombia's most prestigious university, will make of his book Lessons from Colombia's War on Drugs, which he co-authored with Dr. Alejandro Gaviria, who coincidentally is now Colombia's Minister of Health. President Santos has been very clear. Colombia is and will remain fully committed to continue the fight against the drug problem with a comprehensive policy addressing all the links in the chain, from production to consumption, from trafficking to money laundering. As we all know, Colombia's president made a bold proposal one year ago to invite the global community to an open, intelligent, in-depth discussion concerning the war that we have been waging against illegal drugs since it was launched over 40 years ago by President Nixon. The exercise should be addressed through a non-ideological, non-politicized, rigorous, evidence-based discussion, weighting in the costs and benefits of actions taken where all concerned countries should participate. Rather than promoting a particular ideology or point of view on the issues, President Santos emphasizes the need to gather data and evidence that, enable, that will enable countries to have a discussion about possible paths forward in the war against drugs. President Santos pointed out then that Colombia has suffered the most severe consequences of any society in combating drug traffic, as Juan Carlos uh, recently pointed out. We have lost many thousands of lives, including those of policemen, soldiers, judges, journalists, and many of our bravest and best politicians. Let me re remind everyone that during Colombia's campaign for the presidency in 1999, 1989, and 1990, the perverse alliance between the drug cartels and the paramilitary forces killed three presidential candidates. One of them, the then front runner in the race, Luis Carlos Galán. Thus, President Santos wanted to call the attention of world leaders, science, scientists, and experts towards the importance of engaging in an objective assessment of the war on drugs. In his own words, and I quote, 
our invitation is to dutifully study new formula and approaches through an academic, scientific, and non-politicized lens because this war has proven to be extremely challenging and oftentimes highly frustrating. Without question, Colombia has achieved very significant progress in combating drug traffic in close partnership with the United States and other affected nations. We are no longer the world's top co cocaine producer, as acknowledged by the latest report published by the United States Office of National Drug Control Policy, known as ONDCP. Not only have we reduced crops and trafficking, but with strong determination, we have dismantled the world's most menacing cartels. However, as President Santos has said, oftentimes this war, oftentimes this war feels as if we were exercising in a stationary bicycle, where no matter how much effort we devote, the landscape does not seem to change. As Colombia exerts pressure, drug trafficking shifts to other areas in the region and elsewhere that suddenly become exposed to the same cycles of violence and social destruction. One basic premise of the president's perspective is that this needs to be a multilateral approach. Colombia will not act unilaterally and will not do anything that undermines or in any way, any way jeopardizes the efforts currently being made or its own commitments to continue to combat vigorously drug trafficking. During the past summit of the Americas held only six months ago in Cartagena, the heads of state agreed to engage in discussions that are being led by experts concerning the effectiveness and prospects of anti-drug policies, concerning and, and their impact upon the various sectors of society. The General Assembly of the OAS issued a mandate to engage experts to analyze the issues and look at the full spectrum of problems from the perspective of the demand as well as from the supply side of the equation with the goal of preparing an analytical report to be submitted to the various governments. My understanding is that this analysis is in progress. Once completed, the OAS mandate also requires a further exercise to be led, led by Professor Adam Kahane to construct a number of scenarios to guide the discussions. As everyone will surely concur, this analysis is indispensable to enable world leaders to decide upon the best course of action. This report will be, will be a valuable contribution to the debate. By re-examining the international approach to the drug problem from an academic and, and scientific perspective, the discussion can help set the stage for finding one or more new and more efficient and effective strategies. It is in this framework that the book by Daniel Mejia is a very significant contribution to research on these issues. It analyzes the problem of illicit drugs using a comprehensive approach, yet it does not limit itself to evaluating only the demand or supply of drugs. Instead, it analyzes all the links in the chain related to the global problem of drugs. 
Another element that we should recognize is the effort by the authors to provide evidence-based research. As it is well known, one of the problems faced by governments, academics, and societies in general is the absence of reliable or verifiable information for a solid discussion on these issues. As I mentioned earlier, Colombia has much to contribute to the discussion. To the discussion. For over 40 years, the country has faced this problem and, many, and made very significant progress in this fight we, we need to acknowledge. In a span of 10 years, Colombia has reduced by more than 50% the amount of land used for coca cultivation, as reported in US government and United Nations data. The same dramatic decline has been achieved with the potential production of cocaine. According to the UNDOC, Colombia has more than, had more than 395,000 acres of coca crops in the year 2000, and that number has been reduced to less than 156,000 acres by the year 2011. Although the exact figures from the US government differ, they illustrate the same trend. From 164,000 hectares in the same period, we reduced the area to 83,000 hectares. Even more important, there has been a reduction of the potential cocaine production from 700 metric ton tons in the year 2001 to 195 metric tons in the year 2011, a decrease of 72%. Although the final results have taken longer than expected, according to the 2010 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, the largest US survey on, survey on the subject, the number of Americans older than 12 years old who are recurrent consumers of cocaine has dropped close to 40% since the year 2009. Aside from the success of Plan Colombia, we are also implementing what is known as the consolidation policy, which is mentioned briefly in the book. Earlier in Colombia's fight against drugs, we found it difficult to adequately integrate our security, counter narcotics, and social efforts. This lack of coordination within the state often generated more problems than solutions. However, after much trial and error, we managed to establish a defined sequence in which these three elements were integrated to achieve the, the expected results. We have found that when the security efforts, effort is followed by the counter-narcotics strategy, it provides the space for social and development efforts. We have achieved a reduction accompanied by a process of building trust between communities and the state. Based on this experience, the consolidation plan has been broadened to tackle the drug problem in a more effective manner. But we still have many challenges to face. As we move from the pilot phase of the program and increase the scope of consolidation, with the inclusion of more municipalities, the resources of the state have, of course, narrowed. We must continue to move to strengthen coordination between the various state agencies. Let's not forget 
that FARC have benefited hugely from production and trafficking of cocaine. Under President Santos's leadership, we are now in the process of negotiating peace with the FARC. This is something that we can now do because of the tremendous progress that has been made in Colombia over the last decade in terms, in terms of fighting drug trafficking, improving security, strengthening democratic institutions, growing our economy, and implementing programs to maximize social development. This is a process that, as President Santos has said, is to put an end to the conflict once and for all. We do not know whether the peace process will be successful, but we do know that negotiations on the issue of drug trafficking, trafficking and the potential reintegration into society of members of the FARC without jeopardizing transitionary justice that will need to be achieved will be front and center in the discussions that if a peace agreement is reached, it will certainly have a major and very positive impact in Colombia's fight against drug trafficking. In the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, allow me to stress that Colombia's commitment to the current war on drugs is unwavering. Finally, the analysis that has been proposed demands a holistic approach with global solution, solutions and an international consensus. Isolated and unilateral proposals would bring greater distortion and I am afraid would not offer viable solutions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ambassador Urrutia, for your opening remarks. Now we're going to start with our panel. Um, and the first speaker is uh, Daniel Mejia. Daniel Mejia is one of the leading drug policy experts in Latin America. He's an associate professor in the Department of Economics at the uh, Universidad de los Andes. He's also the director of the Research Center on Drugs and Security at the same, at the same university, uh, where he has taught since uh, 2006. He received his BA and MA in economics from Universidad de los Andes, and, and he holds an MA and PhD in economics from Brown University. Prior to joining Universidad de los Andes, he worked as a researcher at the Central Bank of Colombia and Fe Desarrollo. His research includes, besides uh, drug policy, includes uh, political economy of conflict in Colombia, on the relationship between human capital formation, inequality, and economic growth, among others. But during the last few years, he has been actively involved in a research agenda whose main objective is to provide an independent economic evaluation of anti-drug policies implemented under Plan Colombia. His academic work has been published in the, at the Journal of Development Economics, the European Journal of Political Economy, Economics of Governance, and Economia. And along with uh, Alejandro Gaviria, who's now the Minister of Health of Colombia, he published uh, this book, Política Antidrogas en Colombia, Éxitos, Fracasos y Extravíos, uh, which will have an English version outside if you want to purchase it uh, also. So please help me welcome Daniel Mejia. Uh. 
Thank you, Juan Carlos. Ambassador Carlos Urrutia, Ambassador of Colombia to the United States. Mr. Peter Haking, President Emeritus and Senior Fellow of the Inter-American Dialogue. Mr. Juan Carlos Hidalgo, Policy Analyst on Latin America at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity at the Cato Institute. Members of the US government, members of the diplomatic corps accredited to the United States, colleagues and friends. Let me first start by thanking the Cato Institute and the Inter-American Dialogue for their hospitality and for organizing this event. For me, but especially for Universidad de los Andes, it is a great opportunity to be able to share with you the contents of our book on anti-drug policies in Colombia. About three years ago, the president of the Universidad de los Andes at the time, Dr. Carlos Angulo, entrusted Alejandro Gaviria, former chair of the economics department at Universidad de los Andes, and now minister of health and social protection in Colombia, and me, with the task, with the task of compiling a book about the different dimensions of drug policy in Colombia. From the beginning, Dr. Angulo gave us constant support and guided us towards the, objective, the objectives that he himself had uh, produced. Universidad de los Andes ha had the objective of, of, contributing, of contributing to an objective, constructing an informed debate about drug policy in Colombia. Some of us who had, worked, who had been working on the subject for some years and others who had spent many years working on, the, on drug trafficking and, the, and its effects on social, economic, and political consequences, set out to the tax, tasks of finding research at Universidad de los Andes who were, from diverse areas of knowledge, interested in studying the many dimensions, consequences, side effects, effectiveness, and costs of drug policies in Colombia. It was after nearly two years of work in April 2011 that we published the Spanish version of the book Anti-Drug Policies in Colombia, Successes, Failures, and Lost Opportunities. The book deals with many issues, such as international relations and drug policy, the effects and costs of Plan Colombia, money laundering, drug consumption and policies to prevent it, and the multiple connections between drug trafficking, violence, and organized crime. Three years ago, when the university decided to dive into this research agenda, I think that, I think that not even the most radical advocates for change in drug policy felt that the debate on the effectiveness of the current interna international drug regime would evolve as quickly as it has in recent months. In an important way, the debate began to, in to intensify three years ago, precisely when, we're, when we were starting to work on this research agenda with the publication of the report of the Latin American Commission on Drugs and Democracy, headed by former presidents Fernando Enrique Cardoso from Brazil, Cesar Gaviria from Colombia, and Ernesto Cedillo from Mexico. Then, about one year ago, other world, world leaders such as Kofi Annan, George Schultz, Paul Volcker, and Richard Branson joined the three former Latin American presidents and published a report of the World Commission on Drugs. It was a few months later that Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos, in a courageous attitude, encouraged the international community, other presidents in the region, and especially the, the US government, to engage in a frank discussion based on the available empirical and academic evidence about the effectiveness and costs of the current global drug reg regime. President Santos was then followed by other Latin American presidents, like Otto Perez Molina, who introduced the issue of drug legalizations, to which I will refer later on. But how did all this movement started and why in Latin America? In order to understand the recent developments in Latin America, calling for an urgent and evidence-based debate on the costs and benefits of, the pro of prohibitionist drug policies, we need to go back one step and give prohibition an operational definition. From an international political economy point of view, 
prohibition is just a transfer of the cost of the so-called drugs problem from consumer nations to producer and transit nations. Let me explain myself. On the one hand, under complete legalization, who would bear the cost of the drugs problem? Consumer countries, through their health system, the productivity, the productivity losses associated with problematic drug consumption, and the costs of implementing demand reduction policies. With prohibition, on the other hand, consumer countries end up transferring a non-negligible part of this cost to producing and transit countries by pushing them through the international institutions such as the UN conventions and the US certification process to impose supplies reduc supply reduction efforts to make, to make the price of drugs reaching consumer countries higher and their availability lower. Producer and transit countries end up paying the highest price under prohibition by seeing the homi their homicide rate go up their institutions corrupted and weakened by, by organized criminal groups, and their existence threatened by terrorist organizations. If my explanation about prohibition being a transfer of the cost of the drugs problem from consumer to producer countries is not yet clear, let me give you the following thought experiment. Suppose for a moment that all cocaine consumption in the US disappears and it all goes to Canada. Would the US authorities be willing to confront drug trafficking networks to the point of seeing the homicide rate in cities such as Seattle go up from its current level of five homicides per 100,000 individuals to a, level to a level close to 150 homicides per 100,000 individuals so that cocaine shipments don't reach Vancouver? If your answer to this question is perhaps not, well, this is exactly what Colombia, Mexico, and other Latin American countries have been doing over the last 20 years. The urgent call of Latin American leaders for a debate on the drugs problem is a desperate plea to consumer countries to start carrying their own burdens, treating their own ills, and fighting their own wars. The book that we're presenting today compiles the research uh, findings of a diverse group of professors and researchers from Universidad de Los Andes. Diverse in the broadest sense, methodologically, conceptually, and even ideologically. However, there is a clear theme, a constant in all chapters. The respect for facts, the propensity to analyze data and to judge policies not by their intentions or by their attachment to a particular doctrine, but by its results and effects on the economic, social, and institutional domains. Our book is, in, is divided in five, sec in five sections. The first one, Dimensions of the Drugs Problem in Colombia, Production, Trafficking, and Consumption, consists of two chapters. The first one describes the production and trafficking of cocaine in Colombia, quantifies the added value generated in each step of the illegal business, and discusses the macroeconomic importance of cocaine production and trafficking in, Colom in the Colombian economy. Our, our estimations indicate that about $8 billion enter the Colombian economy each year as a result of cocaine production and trafficking activities. This accounts for about 25 to 3% of Colombian GDP. Chapter two in the book examines the evolution of drug use in Colombia during the last 15 years, Character characterizes the consumer of illicit drugs and analyzes in a preliminary way the effects on domestic consumption of the mid-90s constitutional court ruling that ordered to decriminalize the so-called personal dose. The authors of this chapter do not find empirical support for the claim that the, that the decriminalization of the personal dose led to significant increases in drug consumption in Colombia. The second part of the book is about, drug is about policies for the reduction of supply and demand. This part of the book studies anti-drug policies in Colombia. Three policies are comprehensively analyzed in this part of the book. The recent policy of control over cocaine production and trafficking under Plan Colombia, 
alternative development policies, and those efforts aimed at reducing the consumption of illegal drugs with treatment and prevention policies. Chapter, th chapter three of the book discusses the effectiveness, costs, and efficiency of anti-drug policies implemented under Plan Colombia. Chapter four studies alternative development programs and particularly the most recent efforts aimed at controlling illicit crops by promoting legal agricultural activities among coca growers. Chapter five describes the programs, scarce and, dis and disjoint in general, of demand reduction and treatment of drug consumers in Colombia. One of the main con conclusions of these chapters is that while eradication efforts in the form of aerial spraying campaigns of illicit crops and forced manual eradication campaigns are very ineffective in reducing coca cultivation, whereas interdiction efforts, that is the crackdowns and seizures on the wholesale distribution ne network, have, have been quite effective in reducing the size of drug trafficking activities in Colombia. Nevertheless, when seen at the regional level, recent successes in reducing drug production and trafficking activities in Colombia have led to the displacement of these activities to neighboring countries. The third part of the book deals with the issue of international relations and anti-drug policies in Colombia, and explores the interplay between drug trafficking problems and Colombia's international relations. This part of the book contains, again, three chapters. Together, together these chapters show the, that the efforts of several Colombian governments for narcotizing the foreign policy agenda with the, overall, with the overriding objective of, of obtaining help and funding for the war on drugs have led to wrong decisions, to disagreement with countries that have a, a different approach to the drugs problem and to the neglect of important issues in the country's foreign policy agenda. Chapter six shows, for example, that in order to counter the lack of interest on the issue of illegal drugs of some multilat multilateral organizations, Colombian governments have followed the deliberate strategy, rhetoric we might say, of highlighting the links between drug production and trafficking with other issues that do have priority for this organization. Organizations such as terrorism, environmental protection, and human rights abuses. Chapter seven describes the, the recent disagreements between the European Union and Colombia regarding drugs policy. While Colombia has historically insisted on a more repressive approach, the European Union has tended to emphasize a more balanced approach, based, for example, in policies of harm reduction to confront the, the consumption of illicit drugs. Chapter eight in the book shows how the securitization of drug policies has prevented a broader and constructive debate in the relationship between Colombia and the US. The chapter points out, among many other things, that Colombia should take advantage of the current situation in the United States in order to promote an open debate on the prohibitionist stance and an objective assessment of the cost and benefit of benefits of anti-drug policies implemented under Plan Colombia. The fourth part of the book addresses the legal and institutional aspects of the war on drugs in Colombia. Chapter nine presents a detailed study of the constitutional court ruling that ordered the decriminalization of, and of possession and consumption of small doses of narcotics. Based on a description of the daily application of these rulings in the streets of Bogota, the chapter shows the divergence between what the ruling states and its practical imp implementations in the streets of Bogota, especially in cases that involve deprived, per deprived persons and low-income young men, who a priori are perceived by the national police as potential generators of violence and disorder. Chapter 10 describes the various legal responses of the state to confront the drug trafficking and related crimes. The, the chapter shows that the definition of new criminal offenses and the establishment of harsher punish, punishments have not led in general to a significant reduction of narcotics-related crimes and violence. Chapter 11 addresses the issue of money laundering. The chapter makes an attempt 
to quantify money laundering in Colombia and to identify the channels through which the revenues from drug trafficking activities enter the Colombian economy. This chapter shows that money laundering through the financial system has gone down dramatically as a result of the implementation, the implementation of very strict controls and monitoring on financial transactions in Colombia. The last part of the book, Legal and Institutional as Aspects of the War on Drugs, contains four chapters. Chapter 12 shows in its initial part how drug trafficking penetrated the political, social, and economic institutions on, of Colombia, thereby altering the country's course of history. The second part discusses a more recent problem, the dangerous cocktail composed by drug trafficking, paramilitaries, and politics, which gave rise to the relatively, relatively recent scandal known as parapolitica. Chapter 13 examines the effects of drug trafficking on the opinions and political behaviors of, behavior of Colombians. It shows how people living in areas with illicit crops are less likely to participate in political processes and tend to rely less, less on the institutions of the state. Aerial spraying campaigns, for instance, lead to a significant decline of trust in institutions such as the National Police. Chapter 14 examines the relationship between drug trafficking and organized crime. This chapter shows that criminal shocks initially produced by the emergence of drug trafficking activities were reproduced endogenously given the diminished ability of the police and judicial institutions to react in a timely manner. Finally, chapter 15 provides a thorough historical account of the close links that have always prevailed between criminal organizations and drug trafficking activities in Colombia during the last three decades. There are many policy recommendations that are derived from the analysis of each chapter of the book. However, the book as a whole and the analysis that we've been doing at Universidad de Los Andes lead us to a few general points and recommendations that I would like to highlight today. First, in our view, the Colombian government should not feel like one more guest to the debate that is emerging about the current drug regime. Rather, it should, together with the Mexican government, act as the host of this debate. If these two governments do not take the lead of this debate, at least at the regional level, it is difficult to think that someone else will. Several people have pointed out that countries such as Colombia and Mexico have the moral authority, the experience, and the knowledge to propose and lead this debate, which should begin at the regional level and then be scaled up to international institutions such as the OAS and the UN. Only by taking the control of the debate is it possible to ensure that this critical discussion takes place in the domains of evidence-based evidence analysis and not on predetermined ideological positions. At the end of the day, we all want a world without problematic drug consumption, without major drug cartels, without violence associated with these markets, but drug policy, like any other policy, must be judged by its results and not by its intentions. We need pragmatism and a careful analysis of the cost and benefit of different alternatives. These should be the points that guide the discussions in the near future. The current de debate on drug policy should not be based on simplistic solutions derived from pre preconceived ideological positions, but on analysis on research, on, and research that takes into account the available evidence about what works, what doesn't, and at what cost in terms of the different dimensions of drug policy. For example, in our view, the idea of complete legalization without any type of regulation is so simplistic and radical as the position advocating for total prohibition. As we mentioned in the introduction of the book, policies based on evidence are not only more effective in general, they also encourage a more open debate on the best way of confronting a complex and to a certain extent unsolvable problem that will probably, probably remain with us forever. The drugs problem in Colombia is impossible to separate from the security and violence that the country has faced in recent decades. 
The advent of drug trafficking in Colombia during the 70s prompt, prompted an unprecedented increase in the homicide rate, which went from a level below 30 homicides per 100,000 inhabitants in the late 70s to a, level, to a level exceeding 70 in 1990. At the peak of the war against Pablo Escobar and his criminal enterprise, the Medellin Cartel, the homicide rate in Medellin levels reached levels unseen in any, in any other part of the world, 420 homicides per 100,000 inhabitants. Other kinds of crime, including extortion, kidnappings, and armed trafficking, also flourished as a result of the consolidation of organized criminal groups linked to drug trafficking and the consequent weakening of the judicial system. Some preliminary calculations of our research at the University of Los Andes indicates that if the size of illegal drug markets had not, had not grown to the extent it did, 120% between 1994 and 2008, the homicide rate in Colombia would be about 36% lower than it is today. That is, it would be 23 homicides per 100,000 individuals instead of 36, which is its current level. The displacement rate would be 60% lower, and the number of attacks by illegal armed groups would be 43% lower. In short, the advent of drug trafficking in Colombia produced an unprecedented increase of violent crime, first in some states and later expanded throughout the country. The rise of illegal drug markets in Colombia starting in the 1980s also affected, affected the country's institutions. Initially, drug trafficking organizations infiltrated, infiltrated the traditional political parties. Then, the increasing drug-related violence during the times of the Medellin and Cali cartels overwhelmed the capacity of the judicial system to confront these criminal organizations, thus making the country transit to a new equilibrium, characterized by high levels of crime and violence and low state capacity. Organized criminal groups waged an open war against the state and the media, and lent, later on financed the expansion of guerrilla groups and, and paid for the growth of paramilitary ones. In its more recent developments, illegal drug production and trafficking activities have sponsored the emergence of what are now known as the new bandas criminales, criminal bands. As long as the global drug regime maintains a strict prohibitionist approach, Colombia and other countries in the region will have to militarily confront the illegal armed groups and the criminal organizations linked to drug production and trafficking activities. In the end, it is out of the drug production and trafficking business that they obtain most of the resources. Colombia has made great advances in these areas, especially since 2007-2008, when policymakers at the Ministry of Defense revalued some strategies and decreased the strong emphasis in aerial spraying of coca crops and increased operations in those parts of the cocaine production chain that produced the highest value added. That, that is, the detection of and destruction of the labs used for processing cocaine, the interdiction of large, large cocaine shipments, and the blocking of drug trafficking routes. As a result of this new strategy, potential cocaine production in Colombia has dropped significantly over the last four years. Unfortunately, however, the reductions that we have observed in potential cocaine production in Colombia have led to increases in coca cultivation, cocaine production, and drug trafficking activities in other Latin American countries, the so-called ballooning or displacement effect at work. As a result of recent successes in Colombia since 2008, coca crops started to move back to Peru and Bolivia, the processing facilities, the labs and cristalizaderos, moved to Venezuela and Ecuador, and drug trafficking activities to Mexico and Central America. According to our own estimations, the relatively large decrease in potential cocaine production in Colombia that, that came about as a result of the higher inter interdiction and, and seizure rates is responsible for a non-negligible fraction of the increase in drug trafficking and violence observed in Mexico in the last six years. The increase in cocaine seizure rates in Colombia 
that went from 19% of, co of potential cocaine production to 42% in 2010 have led to an increasing drug trafficking activities and violence in, Mex in Mexico of about 45% and 25% respectively. In other words, the situation in Colombia has improved significantly, but our neighbors have become the direct victims of our own successes in Colombia. Nothing guarantees, however, that the problem will not return back to Colombia in the years to come. As long as there is demand for drugs, there, there will be someone willing to take the risk of satisfying it. And as long as there are largely illegal revenues co coming from illegal drug markets, the associated levels of violence will remain. The big winners of, prohibitions, of prohibition are organized criminal groups operating in producer and transit countries. Unfortunately, not everything is good news, and the challenges that lie ahead are enormous. Organized criminal groups and emerging gangs have adapted very quickly, as they have always done to the specific type of drug policies implemented by the Colombian government. For example, their recent involvement in other illegal activities, such as illegal gold mining, has generated, again, pronounced cycles of violence in some parts of the country that the authorities must confront in order to prevent the situation from getting out of control. Another policy, challenges, policy challenge that has gone relatively unnoticed in the discussions about drug policy in Colombia relates to drug consumption. This has most likely been a consequence of, a, of excessive emphasis and attention we have given in Colombia to supply reduction policies under Plan Colombia and to the fight against organized criminal groups. Although consumption prevalence rates in Colombia are still low when compared with, all, with those of other countries in the region, such as Chile, Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay, their evolution over time is quite worrying. The government has the huge task of gathering the experiences of other countries regarding treatment and prevention of drug consumption, together with the, and together with the Ministry of Education, outlining a strategy for reducing drug consumption. It is important that these programs and strategies implemented are systematically evaluated, again, with the purpose of knowing what works and what doesn't in terms of reducing cocaine consumption. The Colombian experience is very useful for countries such as Mexico, Guatemala, and Peru. And it is, it is our hope that this book will be read and studied by those in charge of designing and implemented drug policies in, in these countries. This is because Colombia's path in the last 40 years and what was done along with its, its successes and failures throw relevant lessons for the authorities in the region. These lessons should also be analyzed by U.S. and Latin American scholars and policymakers in order to propose new policies and strategies against the, the fight, in the fight against illegal drug production. That is why the book ends up suggesting in the inter, that in the, in, the, in the international arena, the, Colombia, the Colombian government has the moral authority and the knowledge necessary to promote, to promote a global debate about anti-drug policies and seek new, strate new strategic allies, allies in this enterprise. I would, like to finish you, I would like to finish by telling you about a new initiative at Universidad de Los Andes. Given the enormous interest and reception that our book generated in Colombia and the region, uh, Universidad de Los Andes, headed by Pablo Navas, promoted the idea of establishing a new center, the Research Center on Drugs and Security. The new center will have as, as it, its main objective to promote new research, analysis, and policy documents in order to foster a deeper debate based on evidence about the effectiveness, efficiency, and cost of security and drugs, po drugs policies. The main objective of, of this new research project, projects is to continue informing public policy discussions and providing the information, analysis, and evaluations that policymakers require in the process of designing and implementing public policies in these areas. Another important activity of the new center will be to promote policy debates, conferences, and discussions about drugs and security policies. For instance, in a few months from now, 
on January 28th next year, the Inter-American Dialogue in cooperation with our center is organizing the next meeting of the Inter-American Dialogue's Drug Policy Group in order to review key developments in drug policy in the hemisphere and new ideas for pragmatic policy alternatives. Also, in May of next year, the center will host the seventh annual meeting of the International Society for the Study of Drug Policy. This academic society brings together more than 200 international scholars and experts from all continents who have dedicated their lives to the study of drug, drugs policy. It is worth noting that this will be the first time that this international academic society organizes its annual meeting outside the US or Europe, and at the same time in a drug producing nation. 40 years after, after the declaration of the war on drugs, the debate about the effectiveness and enormous cost of the current prohibitionist stance is quite heated. Several former Latin American presidents and leading intellectuals from, intellectuals from around the world have drawn attention to the ineffectiveness and adverse consequences of current prohibitionist stance. Our book does not conclude with the recommendation of legalization of drugs, but the, with the proposal of revisiting and reorienting the war against production and trafficking of cocaine. Legalization would be as simplistic as it is measuring today the successes of anti-drug strategies by short-term increases in the price of drugs in the streets of the US, without considering the reduction in the size of profits associated with the, with the business of producing and selling illegal drugs and the harms done to society. The proposal then, exposed by former President Gaviria in the prologue of our book, is to start from the premise that consumption is a health, is a health problem, not a crime, which implies the need to investigate the harms done by each drug, the manner in which drugs alter human behavior, how addictive they are, and what the campaigns of prevention and treatment should be like. Questions where there has been a great deal of progress in other latitudes. This book is a contribution from Universidad de Los Andes to an urgent debate that needs, now more than ever, informed analysis that transcends ideological positions and the inertia of political decisions. Thanks to the Cato Institute and to the Inter-American Dialogue for organizing this event. We at Universidad de Los Andes are also especially grateful to Peter Hakim, Juan Carlos Hidalgo, and Kimberly Covington for, al for allowing us to share with you today the main findings and policy recommendations of our book. We would also like to thank Colombian Ambassador Carlos Urrutia for agreeing to participate, to participate in this panel with his opening remarks. We are here today demonstrating that in the United States, it is not prohibited to think and debate about this issue, something that Moises Naim did not think possible a few years ago. Thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, our next speaker is uh, someone who knows Latin America like few others do here in Washington. He's Peter, uh, Peter Hakim, uh, President Emeritus at the Inter-American Dialogue, a senior federal of the Inter-American Dialogue. He was president of, of the Dialogue from 1993 to 2010. Uh, he writes and speaks widely on hemispheric issues and has testified more than a dozen times at the uh, US Congress. His articles have appeared on foreign affairs, foreign policy, the New York Times, Washington Post, Miami Herald, Los Angeles Times, and Financial Times, and in, in newspapers and journals across Latin America. Prior to joining the dialogue, Haken was a vice president of the Inter-American Foundation and worked for the Ford Foundation in New York, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, and Peru. He taught at MIT and Columbia University and has served on boards and advisory committees for the World Bank, Council of Competitiveness, Inter-American Development Bank, and Council on Foreign Relations, among others. Please help, please help me welcome Mr. Peter Haken. Thank you. Thank you. 
Well, thank you very, very much, uh, uh, Juan Carlos. Uh, I must admit that I love it when I get a long introduction like that, but it also tends to reveal my age. So <laughs> next time I'm going to ask to be a little shorter. Uh, uh, I want to also thank uh, Danielle for really an excellent book. Uh, let me admit that I tried very hard to read it before today. And uh, I worked hard at it. It's not exactly Harry Potter. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tough book. And it doesn't have a single theme. It has a variety of themes. And uh, interesting, some of the chapters are actually in disagreement with other chapters because of different perspectives, or they seem to be. And, but I do encourage you, because you'll learn a great deal uh, by reading the book. It's really a terrific book. It's a, you can even start on almost any chapter, and you can get through it. Uh, uh, but do start with the introduction, which Danielle and uh, Alejandro, uh, his, his Gaviria, his uh, co-author, wrote, uh, which, is, which is a great introduction. Of course, you've heard him today. Uh, let me just say, it's going to be very hard for me today to compete with two Colombians to talk about Colombia, about an issue both of them know oh so well, and uh, the ambassador and Danielle. So I'm going to try to be brief and uh, talk as little about Colombia as I, as I possibly can and just try to sort of see uh, where I think we are on, on drug policy in the hemisphere, if I can uh, sort of abstract from, from, the, from the subject today. Um, basically, I think we have one success story in Latin America on, on drug policy, uh, it's, it's, and that's Colombia. Um, uh, Danielle's book uh, shows what a high price that uh, success was and how precarious in many respects it is. Uh, uh, you know, but uh, it's hard not to see Colombia as a success story when one sees the sense of security that the country now has and uh, the change that's taken place over the years and uh, still has a long way to go. And like I say, the price has been very, very high. And there's some that even doubt on the that it's mainly a, a triumph on the security side and not so much on the drug side. So. Uh, there's a lot to go, but it is a success. If you look around the region, uh, there's very few other success. There is no other success story. Almost every country in Latin America, at least, is worse off today than it was 20, 30 years ago with regard to drugs, violence, crime. Uh, uh, there's one other country that's had a reasonable amount of success as well, and that's the United States. Uh, we don't have our violence and crime has gone way down. Drug use, at least in the most dangerous drugs, uh, cocaine particularly has, has declined substantially since its high point. And data recently announced uh, that we should all always take with a grain of salt any data about drugs uh, is uh, declined maybe perhaps as much as 40% in the past half dozen years. And, uh, again, though, the cost for the United States has been tremendous. I don't have to really sort of point it out to, to this group uh, uh, how, you know, the cost of sending so many people to jail. The U.S. has the 
highest per capita jail population in the world, uh, the magnitude greater than most other uh, Western countries. Uh, only countries that compete with us at all are sort of countries like the Soviet Union and China. Uh, and uh, plus, just the high court for our court system is swamped by drug cases, and the police forces are swamped, in other words, and plus, let alone the, the economic cost. But anyway, um, until recently, the US was really the, the principal, uh, I guess you could call it decision maker when we talk about drugs. I mean, it set the style, it set the pace, it sort of uh, was the designer of the approach to drugs throughout the hemisphere. It was a major supporter of the UN uh, Drug Treaty and the UN Drug Agency, and it was the US uh, that basically defined it. It put a lot of money into it overseas. Um, but you know, over the past four or five years, the Latin Americans, uh, Latin American leaders have begun to take a substantial leadership role now that uh, is really rather remarkable how quickly it was. The, uh, Danielle mentioned the report of the uh, uh, former presidents, uh, Cardoso, Gaviria, and Zedillo. Uh, that was published, when was it, in 2008, 2009? Uh, that's only three or four years ago. That had a tremendous impact, that suddenly uh, there was an alternative uh, uh, that wasn't sort of being uh, portrayed by uh, groups of lobbyists or interest groups or think tanks, but by people who sort of really had managed their countries and come to the conclusion that alternatives were needed. And uh, they set out very clearly, and it's worth reading that report, uh, the uh, Latin America report and then the global report. Um, and uh, then recently, even more impressive, is that the sitting presidents, again, as Danielle mentioned, have begun to play a, a serious leadership role, proposing it's time to begin to consider alternatives. It was uh, Juan Manuel Santos and uh, Felipe Calderon and uh, Perez Molina in Guatemala who began seriously to push very hard to get this uh, issue on the agenda of the Summit of the Americas. Uh, and particularly, the issue of legalization should be discussed. And uh, it was interesting that the leadership on this was taken by presidents, not presidents who were in some ways antagonistic to the United States, or somehow themselves were sort of had introduced policies that uh, uh, gave up on the drug war. These were people, all of whom were very strongly anti-drug. They were all had, had really followed hardline careers. And more than that, they were all close allies of the United States in the wars on drugs. Uh, now we hear the word legalization emerge rather uh, regularly. Uh, uh, we've heard it in Latin America. We, now we see in our own election, we have two states that have voted. I guess it's tomorrow that Washington, is it Washington or Colorado, that it becomes legal tomorrow. And, um, you know, fundamentally, 
you know, the question is, and uh, is legalization a solution? Uh, and well, let, let me say before that, let me just say that why I think legalization became such a central point was that it was the first time that the US began to really listen to the Latin Americans. In other words, that's what caught their attention. Up to now, it seemed to be a debate occurring among a group of Latin American presidents, ex-presidents, uh, with a few uh, people in the United States also encouraging debate. Uh, but it was when, uh, particularly Petros Molina really said front and center that unless the U.S. could reduce its drug consumption and reduce the pressure on our countries, we're going to have to think about legalization. And then in more subtle ways, uh, or more less direct, but pretty direct, uh, other presidents like Juan Manuel Santos and Felipe Calderon sort of suggested that they too were looking at it. And a, lot, a number of former presidents came right out and, and said it openly. And basically, it lifted the US from its complacence, that the US didn't have the violence. It had been able to reduce its drug. Suddenly, the US uh, became more, more uh, engaged with this. And um, right now, I, I really think that uh, Let me say it this way. When people ask me, would, am I in favor of legalization? That's the question that almost everybody asks. And my answer now is, it's a lot simpler. I said I would have voted for the uh, referendum in Colorado and Washington because that's what gets the attention. That's the only way we're going to have a debate over the issue, frankly is if there is sort of legalization as part of it. It just doesn't seem any other way to generate the kind of, uh, uh, of attention, of, of uh, interest that, that uh, and I don't know if legalization is the answer. Uh, you know, Danielle talked a lot, and he's absolutely right, evidence, data, we need to base our decisions on that. Um, and frankly, uh, the data is terrible. When the White House Drug Office a year and a half ago could tell me that they're using data from 2007 because they've stopped several surveys because of financial problems or uh, this was a decision taken for X or Y reason, we don't have very good data, we don't have evidence uh, on very, very much uh, this. And we do need more data and evidence before we, uh, and we also have to begin to think, do we really want to talk about legalization? Uh, or do we, are we really talking about reclassifying marijuana? In other words, are we really talking about some kind of illicit drug legalization or are we really right now talking about moving marijuana from being in the classification with heroin and cocaine, et cetera, and the dangerous drugs, and moving it to alcohol, tobacco, and beginning to regulate and uh, 
and, and tax it and, and figure out how to deal with the unpleasant consequences. I think that that absolutely begins to be fundamental. Are we talking about shifting classification or are we talking about a broader approach to legalization? Let me say, secondly, and I think this is missing from the debate, and I would encourage the Cato Institute to begin to, is how we really manage the legalization of marijuana. I mean, one begins to think about all the things that need to be regulated from age. Do you make the age 21 when most marijuana users are or under 21? Uh, what about the uh, taxes on it? How much can you tax it before you get a, another black market? Uh, what do you do with people that violate the regulations? Do you treat them the way you treat people who use it illegally now? There's a whole set. When you talk about switching to health uh, approach to uh, marijuana use, what, is, what exactly do you mean? What health approaches? Well, how much are we going to invest in this? Does this become part of Medicare and Obamacare? In other words, what, how do we deal with it? As a, all that has to be begun to work out if we're going to have a serious debate at this. The OAS study is a, is a good start. I hope they, they, they come to some conclusions. But I, what I also hope is that they don't end up being the only one doing it. I think that it's important that a lot of others begin to come up with ideas and begin to press again on the need for evidence, the need for data, the need for just thinking very hard about how you move toward a legalization regime. Uh, I have no doubt that this is going to bring a lot of attention to the issue. I think it's probably right to move marijuana out of the, out of the classification it now is what it means for the other drugs, what it means for the use of marijuana, what it means for our health system is, is, are all issues that, that really have to be settled. And I think we're moving down that direction. But so far, there really hasn't been as much uh, done on this as there should be. And we're still arguing on the basis of sort of that the current situation is just terrible. We really need something new. This is something new. Marijuana doesn't seem so bad. Let's move in that direction. I think we really need a lot more than that. Uh, but like I say, I would have voted for the Colorado and Washington because I think that's a step in that direction. Thank you. Thank you for the book, Danielle. Thank you for the opportunity, Juan Carlos. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hakim. Now we're going to go into the Q&A. Uh, first, I'm going to use my prerogative as a moderator to ask the first question, because we discussed uh, legalization of marijuana, for example, Mr. Hakim. And, uh, but the problem for Colombia is cocaine. Uh, it doesn't help much if marijuana is legalized in the United States, if the problem when it comes to production and security threats that arise from, from cocaine production in, in, in Colombia. Uh, yes, cocaine production has decreased. Cocaine consumption has decreased dramatically in the United States in the, since the 1980s, mostly to changes in culture and, and preferences. But uh, it's also increasing dramatically in Western Europe, Australia, and other parts of the world. So the cocaine problem is not going to go away. What do we do with cocaine then? Uh, 
you, Daniel, you mentioned that uh, legalization was simplistic. Uh, and actually, uh, former President Gaviria calls it uh, like a crazy libertarian idea. Uh, but what then? What should we then have if prohibition is a failure and legalization is not the answer? Shall I? Okay, I think you're right in saying that the, pro the main problem for Colombia is, is cocaine and it's not marijuana. Legalization of marijuana wouldn't decrease the profits of illegal armed groups in Colombia. So what do we do then with, with cocaine? I think from the, from the producer countries' point of view or the transit countries, I think the only thing we can do is focus on reducing violence. It's not our business to reduce the supply of drugs. This has been extremely costly to Colombia, to Mexico, to Guatemala, to Central America, and we have to focus on reducing violence. Uh, it's, it's, it's not only me saying it. Uh, General Naranjo was the, the chief of the National Police for six years and is the, probably the, the most visible head of the war on drugs in, in, in Colombia and in the region, said that we basically were imposed policies that were a failure in Colombia for $500 million per year. Uh, and we have to focus on reducing violence. And how do we focus on reducing violence? But trying to decrease the market rents associated with producing and trafficking cocaine. Uh, and I think that's the, the focus that should be implemented by Colombia or Mexico. In terms of, of consumer countries, I think the only way to, to go through is try to reduce consumption with, through prevention, especially, and somehow treatment. But we should ask the question in the same way that we ask the question, what type of criminals do we want? We should ask the question, what type of drugs do we want people to consume? And definitely the legalization of marijuana in the US is a step forward in trying to push people to less harmful drugs. And uh, I think that's a collateral effect of the, of the legalization of marijuana, which is to reduce the consumption of harder drugs, which would make it easier for, for producer nations to confront illegal armed groups. Well, uh, I, I could answer simply, I don't know, <laughs> which would probably be the, the honest answer. I, I think, like I said, that we're at the beginning of a process to think through these, these issues. I think what the legalization vote in, in Colorado and Washington may have done along with, uh, of course, the, 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 the efforts of, of uh, presidents like Juan Manuel Santos uh, and the former presidents and their report and the efforts to put it on the agenda, is opens up the way for a real conversation uh, between the producer countries, the transit countries, and the consumer countries. Uh, I think for a long time the U.S. was pointing its finger at Latin America and saying, why are you producing all this cocaine? You just have to work harder and uh, you have to eradicate it or interdict it or replace it with something else. And the blame was sort of coming from Washington. We even used to uh, make judgments about whether the countries were cooperating sufficiently. If they weren't, we sort of put them under some sanctions and the like. Now, increasingly, uh, uh, the U.S. is seeing the finger pointed back at it, that it's the U.S. consumption that is driving the trade in narcotics and which is driving uh, the violence and crime across Latin America. Well, I think that it's time now for, you know, to stop finger pointing in each direction 
Reducing consumption is not an easy task. It's not like the U.S. hasn't thrown so many people in jail and spending 50, 60 billion dollars a year to try and do it. It's very hard to do. But I do think that this is time to begin to work out very clearly and crisply what to do about marijuana, first of all. Uh, how you should manage it, how you should tax it, how you should regulate it, etc. And secondly, I think, to begin to think about this question. I can't come up with the answer. I think this will take a, a, a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of good, uh, a good thinking by a lot of smart people. We're going to go for questions. Uh, of simple, some simple rules. Wait for the microphone. Uh, and please identify yourself and your affiliation. Uh, we're going to start with Ambassador Figueres here. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you, Mr. Mejia, for your presentation. And um, I look forward to reading your book. Um, and thank you, Mr. Hakim, for existing. Um, I agree that we've come a long way in discussing the kind of geopolitics of drugs and of violence uh, in the hemisphere. And we've come a long way from when the South was the producer, the North was the consumer, and we, the transit countries, were the meat of the sandwich. Uh, we are still the meat of a sandwich. However, it's now understood that the South, the, the producers are consuming and the consumers are producing. And um, furthermore, that it's not a hemispheric problem only, that it really is global. And as Moises Naim says in his book, Illicit, it's not just drugs, of course, it's the linkages with illegal arms and money laundering and uh, organized crime and contraband, etc. We live in a, in, in a world that is, in fact, interlinked at the, at the level of uh, the illicit markets. So that brings me to my question, which is actually an organizational question. At Cadiz, the Ibero-American Summit also concluded that we need an international meeting to discuss this. How are we going to organize an international meeting to discuss this, given the enormous agenda that it would involve? It sounds like climate change discussion. You know, It goes across <laughs> so many different areas and so many different countries. Does it have to be taken to the UN or to some global <coughs> level in order to really, really attack it? Um, if, or, or are we making a mistake by being geographically uh, segregated, let's say, in our discussion? Or does it have to be broken down first into um, regions and hemispheres and then taken up to, this is a big question, but you see where I'm going. It's <laughs> just terribly complicated. Thank you. I agree with that. <laughs> uh, Muni, uh, you probably have the answer to this, knowing of your skills at organization and, and uh, diplomacy. I really don't, I, I must admit, what I would like to see happen very quickly is, you know, we just had President Obama meeting with then-president-elect Peña Nieto, now President Peña Nieto, Clearly, that's an issue that was on the agenda. They didn't spend a lot of time talking about any issue, but that was one of the issues. And uh, clearly, uh, Peñonetta was under pressure to shift the direction of the war on drugs, crime, violence 
in different directions to do what Danielle suggested, to focus on the violence and, you know, the drugs are secondary or tertiary. Uh, but I would like to see Mexico and the U.S. now talk about how Mexico should be dealing with drugs. When the U.S., when they're illegal uh, crossing the border, but become legal in certain parts once they're over it. Uh, I think that uh, there's really an opportunity here simply because, you know, Colorado and Washington will be sorting through how they regulate and manage it. Mexico is going through a process of rethinking its drug war. Uh, lots of other countries are doing the same. It opens up an opportunity for a real discussion. And I would start, I think, with Mexico and, and, and the United States just because they're that's the big frontier between the two. That's, and that seems to be the central of attention. And then I would involve, of course, the Central Americans very quickly. I think that global conferences may be valuable at some time or another, but I think, you know, if there's really going to be progress, it's going to come from presidents talking to one another, probably in bilaterally first, and then opening it up to broader, broader consideration. But the leadership really is coming from Latin America now, and one would hope that it would sustain that. I mean, people like Juan Manuel Santos has a lot on his mind, Peña Neto, Laura Chantila. But to focus on this issue is, is important. Here we have one more. Hello, thank you very much for this. Uh, Please, can you tell your name and affiliation? My, Your name and Yeah, my name is uh, Craig Olson. I'm retired from the from the Foreign Service. I served two years in Colombia, as I was telling this lady. Uh, in 2001, 2003, right at the heart of you know the the, height, the, the acne of, of Plan Colombia. But uh, so I, obviously I wanted to come to this uh, today, and uh, my wife gave me permission, but she gave me permission only if I would ask a question on behalf of her. And if I tell you that my wife is from Venezuela, you might guess what the question is. <laughs> What can you tell us today about the role of Venezuela in drug trafficking and how it has it changed over time? Thank you very much. Daniel? Well, there is not, there is not a lot of information on, on what the role, what's the role that Venezuela, the Venezuelan government is playing. What we do know is that there is a lot of collaboration of members of the government of Venezuela, members of the military forces of Venezuela, with illegal armed groups of Colombia who traffic drugs outside of Colombia. Uh, in Colombia, among the military forces and the police forces, they are known as the Cartel de los Soles because of the, of the generals' uh, sons. Uh, there is a lot of collaboration, which makes it very hard for the Colombian government to try to fight these groups because they just find a safe haven in Venezuela to, to traffic drugs. So I think Colombia for the last decade or so has, has seen a neighbor that hasn't uh, collaborated in the, in the war against uh, illegal armed groups especially. And this has made it very hard for Colombia to fight, to fight this business. And uh, on top of that, I think there is, there is information from US authorities from satellite images, that the Venezuelan border with Colombia is full of labs, full of these crystal, full of these labs to process coca leaf into into coca paste, base, and cocaine. Why is that? Because one of the most important chemical precursors in producing cocaine is gasoline. 
let me give you just a number, 2% of the total uh, gasoline consumption in Colombia is used for producing cocaine. That's used, that's used in the very first stage of, of, of producing cocaine. And gasoline in Venezuela is extremely cheap. No wonder why the cristalizaderos and the labs have moved to Venezuela and because they not only they find cheaper chemical precursors, but they also fi find a safe haven to produce cocaine and traffic it. We have one question over there. Uh, My name is uh, Peter Boetsma. I'm the health counselor in the Netherlands Embassy. Um, contrary to general belief, marijuana is still an illegal in the Netherlands to use. Uh, discussions about legalization have popped up quite often. And one of the reasons not to pursue that is the existence of international treaties and the attraction for other uh, people from other countries coming to the Netherlands if we would legalize the uh, drugs. Recently, there has been a study in the Netherlands in which there's also been put doubts about the effects of legalization on the problems we have with crime and also on uh, the problems with youth. And I would have a question for Mr. Hakim. In the present situation uh, around Colorado and Washington State, and uh, to what degree that uh, what, what's going on there uh, is agreeable with the federal law, to what degree do you see that uh, international treaties will play a role in the discussion between the federal government and uh, what will, is going on in Colorado and Washington State. He, he wants Well, uh, that seems to be, uh, frankly, international treaties is the escape hatch that everyone uses when one talks about issues of legalization or about uh, sort of decriminalization of marijuana, that somehow the countries are violating this international treaty, uh, as if uh, international treaties that were negotiated back in 72 never need to be revised. Uh, in fact, I once raised the question with a uh, fairly senior official, I wouldn't say it was at the top of the government, but a fairly senior official in the US government about you know, don't you think it's time to begin to revise uh, the UN treaties on drugs? And, uh, you know, maybe allowing, for example, Bolivia to export uh, coca leaf uh, in tea bags uh, might be a, one thing that could be changed rather simply. But uh, uh, let me be more serious. that. The response was that it would be impossible to get any agreement whatsoever on a new drug uh, control management uh, treaty. So therefore, the US government has absolutely no interest in really revising, updating, renovating the treaty as it stands. Well, I, I think that's a very limited view. Is the treaty? producing uh, good, bad? Is it, is it, is it uh, in tune with evidence and data that we've collected over the past 30 years? Uh, I think that there's no way to get around that, uh, yeah, you should open up that treaty, negotiate it. I don't think it's going to be a central point over time. Right now, everybody is, is, is a little bit afraid to take too much uh, dramatic because the big Actually, the, the enforcer of the treaty has long been the United States. The United States puts up most of the money for the UN organization that manages anti-drug work. Uh, 
some of their work, by the way, is of really top order quality. I don't want to sort of demean the, the organization at the UN. They collect data at a very, very good level. Uh, much of it is better than US data. They have very talented people there and all. But I do think that the drug treaties are just out of date now, and they really have to be revised, and uh, you're going to see countries moving away from those treaties if it's not. So the treaties themselves won't have uh, all that uh, much of a binding impact. Well, actually, Uruguay is about to also pass oh, a law marijuana. So. And, and the U.S. If we keep it short, we can have time for two or three more questions, but bullet points, please. Uh, so let's, let's go with the gentleman here. Howard Woldridge, I'm a retired police detective from Texas, uh, co-founder of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, an observation and a question. Uh, it has been my experience that the war on drugs has been the most destructive, dysfunctional, and immoral policy since slavery and Jim Crow, and that as long as it's 60,000 Mexicans or 100,000 Colombians dying for our drug prohibition, we don't care enough to change policy. My question is, uh, uh, Senor Mejia, um, in Colombia or perhaps others, other places in South America, given our weakened condition economically, we're the greatest debtor nation in the world, are there leaders in Colombia or other places that are feeling comfortable with going without U.S. leadership to change uh, drug policy towards something more of a medical uh, approach versus the criminal approach? Unfortunately, not. Not. Uh, I mean, you see some senators and you see some people in, in the Colombian government trying to push for a for a move, but the most important uh, politicians in Colombia have always asked for permission from the U.S. to do any ch to implement any changes, and this has to change. I mean, uh, going back to one of the previous questions, I think how can we change policy? And in my view, and I think President Gaviria agrees with me, the only way to change policy is that President Peña Nieto and President Santos come together to the, before the U.S. Congress and ask for a debate directly, without any uh, permission to, to do this. Just ask for a debate. Show the numbers, of the, the numbers of people dead and ask for a debate. How can the U.S. Congress turn their back to, to it? I don't think they can, right? One interesting point is that many of these countries already have free trade agreements with the United States. So the threat of commercial sanctions is no longer there. <coughs> uh, I think we have one last question. Uh, over my there. name is Kami Burt, and I'm with the Pakistani Spectator. And I was just wondering that if you have done any study uh, the effect of legalizing drugs in very poor economy like Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I'm asking this question because a lot of people who are in supply side drug business, they are so rich in those countries where governments are very poor. So I wonder that if by legalizing, they can pump that money into legal economy or not. Thanks. That's a question that always emerges, whether legalizing uh, drugs would create a huge uh, shock to the, to the economies of poor countries. I don't think so. I mean, our calculations uh, suggest that between 2.5 and 3% of the Colombian GDP is explained by illegal cocaine production and trafficking. But the costs associated with cocaine production and, and trafficking are much larger than 3% of, of GDP. So I wouldn't think that legalizing cocaine, for instance, would hurt the Colombian economy. If anything, it would improve the Colombian economy. Yeah. One last extremely short question over there. 
My name is Adriana Enal. I work with the Organization of American States at CICAT. And one short question. What do you think about the concept of living with drugs, preparing this, our society for the drugs or domestication? Mm -hmm. We've been living with drugs for, for a long time. The first time that, any, that, that a person uh, gets high, have you seen kids, very young kids, two or three years old, turning around themselves? This is a way of getting high because they, the brain produces something that makes them feel dizzy and this is getting high for them. People like to change this, their state of mind. We've been living with alcohol, we've, we've been living with uh, cigarettes, with tobacco, with everything. The question I think is how, should, how can we domesticate drugs and what type of drugs do we want people to consume? And I think societies have found ways to regulate these uh, things that change the state of mind, and we've been quite successful, I think. Not only in the US, but also in, in other countries. In Colombia, there are legal restrictions on the sales of alcohol for young children. And they are enforced, and nothing happens with that. And I think we can go forward with other drugs. We've been doing it with alcohol for a long time. Why, don't, why can't we do it with marijuana or other drugs? Well, thank you. Thank you, Daniel, for that. And uh, thank you for our panel. Please uh, let me give them applause.